Hey everyone, welcome to the Last Dance After Show. I'm David Villar, and joining me on this exquisite after show journey is the original Hey Yoka himself, Sam Fragoso. Sam, how you doing? Did you have that ready to go? Maybe. What's it to you? Dude, I'm just blown away. I'm impressed. Right off the bat, I'm impressed. I mean, let's, come on, pump the brakes here. No, 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 no. Am I being kind to you because we get to talk about the shot on this episode? Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait. (sighs) Have I been dreaming about it? Did I actually kind of (laughs) want to do this show, 10 episodes with David, to humiliate him and really just keep poking at an old wound? I'm not going to say that. Look, I'm not going to say that. You're a small and petty man, San Fragoso. Hey, I'm 6'1". I'm fine with the pettiness. Valid point. At least give me the height. I'm doing okay. I have one drink in me. That's one more drink Mm -hmm. than I ever have doing Talk Easy. Uh, (laughs) There you go. Um, A bit of housekeeping. This is is Talk Easy after hours to some extent. Um, Haven't sent it it to my mother yet. We'll see what she thinks. I feel like I owe... Uh, an apology and I, you can also do the apology but I'll I'll offer the first one um we released an episode on Thursday uh, it was the B-side recapping episodes 1 and 2 of the last dance uh we had on Carl Tart and Daniel Van Kirk two very funny people that I know uh, we both like and informative very knowledgeable like i said uh in the first episode i think more knowledgeable than us mm-hmm. uh, i don't think they would disagree with that either Uh, That said, we discovered about uh, two hours into the episode being uh, available online that there were some technical issues uh, with the podcast. Um, I'm going to take the blame as I was supposed to listen to it before uh, we aired it. I listened to one cut and then another cut got uploaded and eh, you look, you know what? Hey, 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 hey there, champ. This yeah. is this is a co-production here. I, that's this is on me as well. Okay, so I want to apologize to the listeners, to our guests, to everyone out there. And uh, the episode is fixed. It has uh, uh, has been amended, and uh, a few people have written me. They've really enjoyed it. So if you have not listened to uh, the B side with Carl Tart and Daniel Van Kirk. That is now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. Um, I don't think we're going to fuck up any future episodes. I'm pretty sure. That's the sound of me knocking on wood, and uh, yeah. let's hope you didn't just jinx it. I may have. I think the only thing we'll fuck up, or you'll fuck up, is kind of your backward opinions on basketball. But besides that, I think everything's going to go great. Just remember, <laughs> you're the hey yoka, meaning backward walking person. All right. Oh, uh, such a good reference, David. Thank you for being here, and I'm I'm glad to be doing this thing with you. Uh, why don't we call up our dear friend Brian Moses? Sounds good. Brian Moses, thank you so much for joining us. Holy cow! Here we go. It's been two months. That's Since I've whooped your ass intro. on a basketball court. <laughs> How are you doing? So all who don't even know my voice, just, hey, this guy. <laughs> uh, I'm his Celtics. How have you been, man? What, what have you been doing during quarantine? Not playing basketball, missing basketball, loving the last dance, waiting for it, yearning for it. Uh, really excited it's here. Um, really just a lot of pull-ups. And a lot of just like, you know, counting and checking the days so I can get back on the court with Sam <laughs> and uh, potentially murder him. Wow. Like a, like a sideshow Bob, Bart Simpson vendetta, oh, I guess. God. Wow. 
You're, I'm your Craig Elo. Wow. That that takes a special yeah. significance for me, but go on. <laughs> Talk to me about it, Dave. Oh, uh, well, I mean, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. Let's, uh, let's just I, get into it right you now. Want, you want to get, let's do it. Let's do it. So, so for context, all three of us play in a basketball game on Thursdays and Sundays. Obviously, we cannot do that right now. I think all of us just watched the episode. I know Man, Brian I'm did. I'm loving your... Uh, your R&B radio station uh, voice, by the way. Yeah, he's he's the Quiet Storm. It's the same, like straight thing. up the Quiet Storm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. very soft jazz. Mm-hmm. Put putting out a shout out to Art Pookie LeBeau on Sunday. Yeah, Art LeBeau. Oh God, God. Which, okay. by the way, can I just say? Yeah, yeah, just say. Scotty Pippen missed his calling as like the Quiet Storm host. His voice is buttery smooth. By the yeah. way, very deep. His personality mm-hmm. is not. Yeah. Neither is LeBeau's, but you know. Ooh. No, I love Scotty. I love Scotty. If the show ends up doing well enough, someone can make a super clip at the end of our ten episodes of me saying, "Look, I'm from Chicago." Right. I feel like I feel yeah. like I said I'm I was from Chicago twelve times in yeah. the last two episodes. Um, and it's like your catch-all for, by the way, for like getting out of everything. Like, hey, I murdered a guy, <laughs> but you know what, guys, I'm from Chicago. You know, oh, I mean, yeah, it's like, no, no, listen, I have black friends. <laughs> That's what it sounds like when you say that. I'm from Chicago. I'm allowed uh, to say I'm from the Chicago Bulls. God, Brian, I missed you so much, Brian. Oh, God. Film-wise, this is like this is the best next thing to to actually playing basketball is watching this documentary. Yeah, it really brings it back to a real fun era. You're absolutely right about that. Oh, for sure dominated by one team though i think i forgot about that a lot it was like i was only waiting for the bulls to be great because i was so young in those days and like the 80s was like the golden era and kind of like the ascension of the nba you know right and then in the 90s it's all about michael jordan it's all about one guy basically well the, you know what's interesting about it and that i kind of realized for the first time uh, uh while watching this is that you know, of course, obviously, chronologically, it lines up perfectly with Jordan winning in 91. But one thing that I think uh, we forget, or at least I forgot, is that also in 89 or in, rather in 90, after that season in 91, I believe, that's when NBC takes over the rights. And so the whole look of the NBA kind of changes. CBS before that, right? Right. It was it was like CBS in, in like the feel of it when you and, and you look go back now on C, on the CBS clips on YouTube and stuff like that, and it's like it feels like an old eighties den with like wood paneling on the walls, like that type of feel to it. And then like when it hits ninety one, and of course you got Round Ball Rock with John Tesh, and you got Costas, and you got Marv and the Czar, the Telestrator up in there, but yeah. like the whole thing, and I don't even know if it's like. Maybe the cameras change too, like from you know a certain depth, like in that some theme way. Song change. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh, the round ball rock for sure. Da-da-da. And and then and then not only that, I also even noticed down to Jordan's like shoes. Ninety one, the Jordans of that when he the ones he rocks in ninety one, are like those like kind of sleeker, more futuristic looking infrared looking Jordans. Like I mean, even down to that, it's like the whole. It's like welcome here is the nineties. Here, I mean, everything's changed. So 1991 was the first year that NBC got to host the NBA Finals. Brian, where did you grow up again? So I grew up in the L.A. TV market. So I was a, uh, I, w- I mean, I was born in Los Angeles. I grew up in a couple of military bases, like in, around the, you know, Central California, Southern California area. Uh-huh. Um, so a lot of the, uh, the sports we got were like Southern California. And, and my, my whole household was all 
Laker people, you know, so we were all Laker fans. Does that include you as well, or? Oh, I, yeah, I love yeah. the Lakers. Even yeah. when we were bad, I love the Lakers. I'm a Sedell three, you yeah. know, old school. <laughs> love the Lakers, you know what I mean? Like that, uh, really, you know, AC Green before he had sex. Sure. When he, when he was rocking the Jerry Curl? Wow, yeah. I mean, that deep. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, actually, it's funny. You actually stole my punchline. I actually... When I get into it with Lakers fans, I'm always like, oh, were you there for the Sedale three years? And they're like, who? And I'm like, exactly. Those All were right. thin years, dude. Mm-hmm. Those were really thin years. You had to really mm-hmm. love that team. What What do you remember as a kid in L.A. watching Jordan come in the league and then start battling with the Lakers, Magic Johnson and Worthy? And Honestly, you want to get real? Yeah. You remember not- HIV. You really do. I mean, you think you're like, God, if he didn't have it, I wonder how many more years, how many more battles, because it was all about Larry Bird in the 80s. You know, right. that's all we cared about was it was kind of that. I remember, I think, I think the ESPN 30 for 30 kind of told the story about the Lakers and the uh, and the Celtics. And it kind of was white versus black. But then the 90s comes and it's just about like Michael Jordan wasn't black or anything. He was just Michael Jordan. You know what I mean? Right. So you, you can't yeah. only think about that. And maybe, you know, if, if if Magic Johnson doesn't get HIV, you might see more of those battles in the in the early nineties anyway, you know. Yeah, but then you then you would have missed out on his co- his illustrious coaching career with the Lakers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God, that was, those were lean years. Those were lean years. <laughs> those were lean years. The Sedell three, the oh, I mean wow. George Lynch was there for a second. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you I this is such a strange thing, but as a follow-up, what was I don't know what what did your family make of the whole HIV thing and magic? What did we make of it? Yeah, like cuz cuz now we look now we look back on it and there's less judgment, I think there's less totally. homophobia, there's there's a whole bunch of less thing, but in the moment you're a kid. This is like a very real thing that you're introduced to as a kid. You know as a kid, I think I didn't know what to think of it. I think um I might've been on, on the same train as everybody else of like, oh my gosh, this is real. Like I, I know somebody now with HIV right. and now it kind of makes it not so much. I don't really know what it was before cause I was a kid. So I didn't know it was so much known as like a, uh, a homophobic disease or that kind of thing. Or it was like, it was stereotyped as such. Um, I just thought it was like, oh, this, like anybody can get this. This is like Ebola in a sense, right? If magic can get it, you know, like he's, you know, he's Mr. He's Mr. Wonderful, mm. you know, Mr. Right. Laker, like, you know, so that that made that made sex and it was so inappropriate in a sense because it was like he got it sexually transmitted, you know. So it kind of made you grow up a little bit as a fan of like, oh, I'm going through this with him, you know. I mean, I don't have it, but it's also like this is the death of my team in a sense, you know. Like I hope this guy doesn't die also. Yeah. Which is interesting because I was actually thinking about it with episode three, which is Rodman focused, right? Right. And and I was actually gonna ask you guys what your reaction, people that you knew, other NBA heads and stuff like that. 93, Rodman gets traded to the Spurs, right? After, and I completely forgot about this, Rodman uh, brings a gun to the palace and falls asleep, uh, which, you know, in his car or his truck, which was, you know, kind of a red flag. And the, uh, the Pistons, you know, saw it as such. So he gets traded to the Spurs. Meanwhile, Demolition Man... Uh, pretty trash movie <laughs> gets released with Wesley Snipes rocking a dyed blonde do and Rodman goes out and emulates it. 
And like, it was amazing because I remember at the time and it was kind of that reaction as well. Like, how did people deal? Like, it was, it was just like, who is this guy? How dare he? You know what I mean? Like, speak to that. I mean, what was your, did you guys have any reaction to that at the time? Sam, you have anything about that? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Brian, for handing it to me. Knowing damn well, at 93, I was not even one years old. I was not even born. So at, at the time, at the time, I had no reaction to it. But I did think, looking back at it, Rodman in the 80s and 90s uh, got to live such an interesting life. Incredible. <laughs> Like, aside from the women he dated, which is dating Madonna and, like, Carmen Electra and... Which is, like, the urtext of, by the way, of the Kardashian, the Kardashian curse, by the right. way. Right, which, I mean? like, which is totally true. Just yeah, if, if I guess he, he kind of does start that. It, it starts mm-hmm. there. It starts there. But imagine him being covered by, like, NBA beat writers in 2020. Like, just, there's no way. There's no way this guy could do that now. I mean, yeah, going out like actively and like knowingly drinking and partying like during the season. Amazing. (laughs) That's gnarly. I mean, yeah, you didn't really think too much about Dennis Rodman. I mean, you just knew he was a piece on the Pistons as much as like Mahorn or Lambeer. Like he wasn't, you know, you're like, oh yeah, they got Rodman. Like you didn't know him as the worm until he maybe gets to San Antonio. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You don't really think about him until he dyes his hair and starts dating Madonna. Then he's like a thing. You know, I was looking back on his behavior as someone who really wanted to do what he wanted to do. Like he was really trying to, I don't know, take his own lane. And if you look at other sports like football or baseball, hockey, this is kind of what makes the NBA special, especially right now is that these people can kind of be people like they're actually full fledged autonomous people. If you look at, a lot, of, a lot of baseball players, a lot of football players, especially football players, I just don't know anything about them. Like, their personalities are so hidden. And and in some ways, Rodman, I don't know, he broke the mold in a way that said, hey, you can be great at this thing and also kind of be unhinged and, and dye your hair and date a fucking superstar like Madonna. And there's something really admirable, as crazy as it was, I wish I was a, an adult person in the Rodman years to know what that was like. I'd have to, I mean, my dad has stories, but God, he just, he was just so fantastic. But what's fascinating though about that is that you look at right now and let's take, let's take Russell Westbrook, right? He's, he's the one showing up to the, the arena in, you know, absurdly ripped jeans and, you know, elaborate different looks and that's just not that big of a deal. And that's what it was. So, that's why it was so interesting to look back on this and see this just reaction to Rodman, which was just like, and I, I remember I'm old enough to remember that at the time, like it was such a, 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 a blow, I guess, to the old guard and the moderate NBA, as it were, that it just it just blew, like I said, it blew people's minds. And granted, like, I think now most people would be, it would be different, you know, if somebody was showing up in drag and dressed in a wedding dress and what have you. But I don't think it would get as many looks as it did then, that's for sure. He would kill. He would kill on Twitter. Oh. He would be oh, yeah. a meme every night. 
For sure. Yeah, he was like NBA's young thug before young thug. He's, you know, this <laughs> weird, fluid, sexually person. But he's also like an athlete. You know, he's like, he's questioning that kind of machismo culture a little bit. You know, it kind of softens the blow for guys like Allen Iverson who were coming through tatted up, you know what I mean? But like the NBA was really accelerating rapidly in the 90s anyway. They were making more money. The shorts were getting longer because of Jordan. It was paying more hip hop because of Jordan. And then you get a guy like Rodman who's tatted up, dating, I mean, porn stars, essentially. I mean, the guy was like, <laughs> he was the man. And then you have a guy like Alan Iverson. They're like, all right, cut this out, everybody. Put suits on. Get rid of the crows. Rodman, I don't know what that's about. Wait, which porn stars was he dating? I mean, I said essentially. <laughs> is that Carmen Electra? Is she essentially? Well, to no, be fair. I hope she looks. She love. was in Doritos commercials. You're in, in love with her? Is that right. I mean, she was like, yeah. She oh, she was a uh, sorry, a Playboy uh, like centerfold. She was perfect. Madonna was, you know, like in the night. Both of them emerged as such good actors, though. That's really all. That's how I see them personally. Oh, Rodman. <laughs> no, ma- <laughs> no, Madonna and, and uh, Carmen Electra. Was she in Daredevil? Is that? Am I getting that right? You are not. Uh, I believe that, I believe that's Jennifer Garner uh, she, that you're thinking. Carmen of? Electra wasn't in Daredevil. I don't think so. Maybe like as like a cameo. She was like in, she made a run in like the, you know, the date movie, like the, the wacky, uh, oh, right. scary like, movie. yeah, scary movie type, like the naked gun modernized type things. Yeah. Madonna was in a league of their own and she was a Vita. She's, I actually think Madonna's a pretty good actress. I'm, I'm kind of in on Madonna acting. Fuck. She's not in. She's not in Daredevil. She's not even close to being in Daredevil. She's not That's, even close. That is. She's not even that close. Is shameful. You know. Maybe Rodman's in Daredevil. No, Brian. You know Rodman's not in Daredevil. No, but he is in Double Team, and he is also in Simon Says. So is that true? It's. I've got a wonderful quote to a wonderful piece to share with you okay. uh, when we get there. So. Um, oh, oh, there's there's a whole journey here. Oh, there we we're on a journey. Oh yeah, okay. for sure. It's a sojourn, really. It's a walkabout. Okay. Brian, you were talking about like the, the you know basketball turning into or, or like adopting some of the hip hop uh, like look and iconography of the '90s, and I kept thinking about Jordan in the documentary in that chair, like drinking his bourbon, smoking his cigar. He just I'm gonna put it and again. I'm from Chicago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> get it, Sam. Get it. Some of your friends are Democrat. So, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, and, then, uh, and, and thank you for using the word some. Some. Just some. I kind of think he's a Republican. Is that possible? Is that possible? I mean, he did have that quote. He said that... Uh, even Republicans buy tennis shoes. Yes, that's in the next right. episode. And there's, oh my God, that is so, um, I don't know. There's something about him that strikes me as very conservative. Well, this goes into the, he's just trying to be everything to everybody. And and as Brian said before, Michael Jordan transcended race in a lot of ways. And if he did this, it would definitely call to attention, right or wrong, I think wrong, that, you know, oh, how dare he support an African-American candidate in North Carolina, especially against Jesse Helms. Good. Ugh. It, it just, it, that's a whole other story. But 
the point is, is that he was trying to he was trying to transcend race, and and yeah, he he certainly got called out for it by by a lot in the uh, African American community. Yeah, but he was so great, you didn't really care. You really yeah. didn't. I mean, like he was. It was almost like he was speaking to kids more so than he was like he was speaking to people of his his own his own I guess age group. But also, I mean, the guy was off the charts charismatic. He was so well spoken. It was like he was a robot when it came to. I mean, he always had the right answer for everything that the that the media asked him. I, I don't think I've ever heard an athlete speak as clearly. Maybe maybe except maybe Tom Brady, but I mean, they just they always seem to have the best answer for the for that moment. They're never over, they're never under, you know, they're just, it's always like the, the best quote, the best soundbite. The one thing him and Brady have in common is that they're kind of the best at their thing. Like, I wonder if you know in your heart, like, yeah, I'm the best at this. Maybe it's a lot easier to like field those inane questions from the press, knowing damn well, like, you can ask me whatever you want. But I'm the best at this thing, and you know it, and I know it, and every every team I play against knows it. I mean, that's what's so fascinating about episodes three and four is seeing Magic say, yeah, this guy's the best. Like, if I'm going to lose, it's going to be to him, and there's something right about that. Like, cosmically, karmically, there's something right about me, one of the best players to ever play this game, to pass the torch to this guy who is better than me. And his acceptance of that um, is so fascinating. It's so fascinating because it totally, uh, which we're going to bring up as we bring in Davey, it totally clashes with the way Isaiah Thomas and the Pistons handle losing. I mean, magic, even in that moment of losing, I mean, that interview that he does comes like 20 minutes after he just lost the NBA finals. And he's like, yeah, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen to him. And his, his, gra- his gracefulness, his gracefulness is so impressive to me. You don't think so, Moses? No, I, I, I don't know. I just feel like he was, I felt like he was done. I, something about magic, I just feel like he was done by 91. I, I, I don't know what it was. He just seemed so tired. He seemed so lethargic. Obviously, we learned later that it was, you know, HIV, but he just seemed like he was done. So I think in that interview, he was like, I, I feel like his competitive edge was just, it just wasn't really there. And to be fair, if I'm not mistaken, in that series at that point, James Worthy and Byron Scott were both injured and likely out for the rest of the series. So it was like, you know, this this is over. Like, or this was already over. Yeah, Yeah, and and there wasn't much we could have done. Hey, even if we would have pulled out this last game, you know, they would have gotten us no matter what. It was like they had to be gracious. Like, they couldn't be the Pistons because, like, they didn't think they could beat them. The Pistons thought they could beat everybody. Right. right. The Lakers were like happy they got to the finals. Or like, you know what? Honestly, it's the, it's their time. That's a good point. I and, and frankly, I like well, what's interesting is like later on, I don't want to do too much of a spoiler alert, but you know, it's it's pretty much common knowledge. Like that kind of attitude, that lack of grace by the Pistons comes back to bite Isaiah in the ass big time oh, in, yeah. 19, in 1992. Uh, look, and, we we all we all want to talk about that. So before we bring in Davey, let's not miss an opportunity to go back to 1989 in the uh, semifinals: Bulls versus Cavs. God damn it! Oh God! And it's such a good moment, really, <sighs> for the Bulls and for Jordan. And it's just this time that I reflect on in a way that 
is so positive and, and, and so so formative for Jordan as a great player. And David, I believe you felt the same way, right? I did not. Uh, wholeheartedly did not. Um, that was my, that wasn't my, that wasn't the advent of my NBA fanship. I had been watching, but I'd become a Cleveland fan, a, a Cavaliers fan, and that team was solid. I mean, really good, really good. And as a matter of fact, Magic Johnson himself said this was the team of the 90s, obviously, before the Bulls took over. But um, it was tragic. And watching it again and the way they set it up is, you know, masterfully put together. But I had completely forgot about Craig Elo, by the way, scoring the bucket on a wonderfully drawn up play by Lenny Wilkins with six, six seconds left uh, to take the lead. And your your Cleveland homerism is so lovely. Like 30 years removed, you're like, look at the penultimate play, the play calling. It was so good. I'm look just how saying, beautifully organized. I'm just saying it's Shakespearean, okay? All right. Give me a damn break. All right. It's it's Shakespearean in its tragedy. Because then, of course, Michael, you know, and 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 by the way, gotta love Ron Harper just with the eye roll to Lenny Wilkins and just like are you serious? You're not going to put me on fucking, you're not going to put me on MJ. Yeah. And then, and then they put Elo on it. Michael rises, still rising. If I'm not mistaken, like somehow like, like achieves a second level of, of yeah. Ascension. Yeah. The levitation is like he hangs in the air, then like then rises and then drops. Mm -hmm. And then makes the shot. Obviously the iconic fist pump. Craig Elo is apparently shot in the back. And just falls down like as if he's just been mowed down in a in a drive-by. Um, and that was pretty much that for my Cleveland Cavaliers with that team. Ron Harper leaves, blah, blah, blah. Everybody, yeah. So so yeah, to the Clippers. I remember that. Mm -hmm. A couple things, because I don't want to leave too quickly um, from, from this really fantastic memory. Uh, as a fan of the Cavaliers. How did you take it at the time? It was devastating. I mean, it was it was true heartbreak. Now, keep in mind, I'm also a Cleveland sports fan across the board. So I had previous heartbreak yeah. with the Cleveland Browns in the drive. So you like majored in sports depression. Yeah, when you become a when you become a Cleveland sports fan, that is that is part and parcel with yeah. the agreement, right? <laughs> and that's why 2016. I mean, I'm not I'm not a religious person. But as far as cathartic experiences and like touching the face of God, that's what 2016 was for me when the Cavs came back. I'm not sure if you heard this three to one against the Warriors who had the Such best a record good series. of all time. Yeah. Such a good series. Yeah. So if, if Draymond wasn't such an idiot, that would have never have happened. But it was so great that it did. And what I like to think is that because of that, the shot and all the subsequent heartbreak and the previous heartbreak as well, that allowed me for this just, or, you know, orgasmic ejaculation of joy when 2016 came around. That now, nobody I, now I definitely can't send this podcast to my mother. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> so, so. He's uh, a real sports fan. That's what happened. Yeah. The, <laughs> orgasmic. The, you're a real sports fan if you can do an, uh, an orgasmic ejaculation. Yeah, if, yeah, of if, joy, of joy. I mean, if you've gone through all that adversity, yeah, you're allowed to 
literally like like you won a championship and then you're yeah since we're not doing a video podcast can you describe what you were doing just there oh, okay <laughs> what i'm saying is yeah <laughs> i was <laughs> you're holding your penis as if it's a champagne bottle boom and then you just blast all over your homeboys because you're so excited that you won yeah that's <laughs> single tear rolls down my cheek that was beautiful. I don't know if that's a tear. I just... <laughs> <laughs> I, also, I'm, I'm so glad that they're all homeboys, too. They're not just friends. They're homeboys. By the yeah, way... Yeah, it's the game. Yeah, they won. And all of a sudden, bam, you're just like, Whoa, wow. We're closer now. Question for the both of you. Um, this is called The Shot uh, in, in the canon of NBA history. Is the Kawhi shot against the Sixers the new the shot? Brian? I don't think so because Kawhi leaves. So then it becomes like a once it becomes that that season is gonna be I can't wait to see the documentary of that season because it's never gonna happen for Canada again. You know what I mean? Unless they get, you know, a Michael <laughs> Jordan type of person. But that one run they had, the, the trading of that dude to that region of the country or another country and then they get that shot to win that series and the guy leaves like that's a whole different legend you know what i mean then this is that's essentially the ascension of michael jordan because like every year something happened where that guy was like dude this guy's the greatest thing we've ever seen right the 63 63 points in 86 against the eventual champions four hall of famers when you can hand check and like beat the shit out of people i mean that makes him the greatest i thought that made him the greatest player everyone when that happened you know what I mean? Right. Then 89, the shot's great because that's iconic. And they lose to the Pistons. And then 91, you beat the, you know, you beat the Lakers at the end of their great run. There, there's no, there's, there's so many great stories of Michael Jordan. So you think it's the best shot because it is one in a series of benchmarks that cements him as one of the best players of all time, if not the best player. I mean, it's called the shot. I mean, just because it's, it's in that lore, but yeah. I mean, it doesn't, it's not the 98 shot where, you know, he pushes Brian Russell to the side and, you know, hits the shot. Do you think there was yeah. a push? I didn't think there was a push. I didn't there was that. a push. Yeah, Short answer uh, to your question, Sam. Hell no. All right. Okay. The shot is, keep in mind, oh, the, it's called the on. shot. It's called the shot. Hey, look, props to Michael Jordan. He made it. It's called the shot mostly because Cleveland fans had co-opted because we also had the heartache of the drive and the fumble. And now we have the shot. So that it is what it is, and that's what it was. That's what it was oh. coined. And and hey, I mean, it's not it's not something that like we want. It's just something that that we yeah. we we own. But at the same time, I would also the Kawhi thing is also the bounce. And yeah, you know, I mean, it's the OG. The shot is the shot. It is I, what it is. I, no, I agree. I think the shot is the shot. Um, and I like that it came in a long line of defeats and tragedies for you. I so I, I really like it. By the way, what's what's interesting though, and this goes to again the fact that it's a Cleveland thing and that we named it. You look at those first three titles, yeah, for the Bulls. He has three iconic pretty much three iconic shots that could have been called the shot in each one. He's got a what oh what a spectacular move by Jordan against the Lakers with the probably unnecessary hand switch. Uh, but, I mean, amazing. I remember watching it live just being like, oh, my God. The shrug, uh, which I would like to believe MJ 
uh, was the inspiration for the shrug emoji mm-hmm. um, in against Portland. So and good. then and then he has that hip shot against the Suns, you know, where he's like pulls it down and he's getting fouled and then he and he pulls it from his hip and like makes it from like the foul line and then comes back and does the arms raised and and BJ is just like, you got to get together or whatever he's saying. But I mean, it's just that that I think also adds so much to the mythology of all this yeah. is that he just has those moments that are just like, oh, yeah. And, and on top of and that's the other thing, too. So much props to Jason Ayer, the director, for these montages where that are just incredible. And like, I have to say, there's a part of me that almost loves and they get into um, in episode four, they get into Michael's uh, deciding to become a bigger dude because he's just getting jacked by the by the Pistons. Right. I kind of like skinny MJ. Like the way he moved, like the uh, the he was almost more of a uh, of a ballerina in that way. Um, I, you know, obviously he was incredibly effective when he when he added the muscle and he just was just automatic dr- drilling turnaround jumpers, especially from the elbow. But like in those montages when when Dr- Doug Collins is basically like, yeah, he won the you know Defensive Player of the Year, All Star of the MB, uh, MVP of the All Star Game, MVP of the league. And the dunk contest, which I thought was a little weird because it almost sounded like Doug Collins was like taking credit for like the dunk contest win. Like it was like, yeah, good job, Doug. Uh, sweet I, I, I think Doug was like, look, we didn't win shit, but let me tell you what he did win. <laughs> yeah. He won all the things that he would have done without me. Mm-hmm. No, I, I actually do think Doug Collins. It, Doug Collins is, is very important because Jordan liked him. So if yeah. if Jordan liked him, then he matters. That that's 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 kind of where it begins and ends. But he got done dirty. I mean, that whole setup that Kraus like put him in, which was, I mean, destined to fail. Let's not kid it. Let's not kid ourselves. Like hiring Tex Winter and then Phil Jackson and then basically saying like, hey, you know, like you two get together and basically run like a shadow coaching staff over here. Like you know, Doug clearly in the interview knew what was going on. But it was the right move. I mean, I mean, it, for sure, it, it absolutely it, was. I'm not saying what, but it's just like it comes at a price. Because I'm a lot of mind being a Chicago fan back then, being like, "Wait, this guy just got to the, the the conference finals. Like, how are we getting rid of them?" Yeah, but it ultimately was the right move. Mm-hmm. It's I like mean, trading I mean, Charles Oakley. You're like, how are they trading like one of their best like the player of the team? Then right. it becomes the right move. And that later is, I think, showcased even more. And I've always been a little bit of, uh, I don't want to say anti-Phil, but, you know, I always use the analogy. It's like, hey, you get a keys to a Ferrari. Guess what? You're going to drive fast. Like, look at the players that he was given all the time. Right. But, you know, watching this, it has given me a better understanding of his ability to ego manage. And especially with Rodman, when they get into that and his, I mean, we got to get into the vacation, right? Like the vacation. We do. Can, can I can I offer one thing before we move into that um, to bring the whole shot conversation full circle? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Toronto Raptors were a pretty good team under Dwayne Casey. So good that he won coach of the year. The right. year after he's coach of the year, he is fired for Nick Nurse. And everyone around the league said, what are you doing? He just won coach of the year. And then they won the finals. So, you know. I mean, technically, uh, the, the Raptors are still champs. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, by the way, um, really good team this year. Shockingly good team. And I, I do contend. The reason I brought that question up is because, yes, the shot will be the shot forever. And it's incredible. And the fist pump is good. And Elo, you know, descending to the floor is so great. And, and me harassing Villar is so fun. I kind of think the Kawhi shot's harder. I kind of think it's harder. It's over and beat. It's fading in the corner. It bounces improbably. Kind of think it's harder. It means less because the shot is inextricably linked to Jordan's career, which so clearly uh, outdoes what Kawhi is going to do in his future and, and what he's even capable of doing. But... Yeah, but it's like if it's already called the shot somewhere else, then you got to call it something like the bounce. You know, that way you're not overshadowing yeah. something else that's already great. I agree right. with that. Uh, that's a branding issue. Howard saying he's Superman. When you're like, clearly it's it's yeah. Shaq. It's a branding issue. I agree with that. Villar, go ahead. Vegas vacation. Let's do it. I mean, I, this is amazing. I I had completely forgot about this. And th- what do you even say? Do you think anybody could get away with this now? LeBron kind of pulled, tried to pull this off, and he did. But, like, LeBron being LeBron, a pretty straight-laced family man, I'm, I'm sure he's got – I'm sure he's doing some things on the side. But, you know, he took that little trip down to Miami while he was in Cleveland in his most recent stint. But, you know, Dennis going and saying, look, I need a vacation. And Mike just being like, well, well for what? And Dennis is like, you know, just, just for – just, just to be Dennis. Just, just, just for health purposes. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing. It's a, just a wonderful story. And then, well, first off, n- no love given to, uh, no love given to <laughs> Dennis and his boys and their terrible toasts, which were just, which were all over the place in the dock. Um, but, uh, and then the fact that Michael has to fly out to Vegas, knock on the door, after and I still have not been able to find out how long he was gone. It was unspecified in the documentary, and, and with my research, I wasn't able to my research wasn't able to uh, figure it out. But to knock on the door and and he and Carmen Electra are in bed, presumably Wonderful. naked. Wonderful. I love that they got her in there. Mm-hmm. I love that they got her in there. I'm, I was really impressed and like just so happy that she got to recount what happened. Just like. Michael Jordan came in the room. It's just like, like, it's also like her favorite person too. You know what I mean? Just like, oh my God, Michael Jordan. I don't want to meet you like this, but I'm such a big fan. Would you sign anything on my body? <laughs> that's basically what she said in the documentary. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's what it felt like. Yeah. She was like, I love this guy. I'm so embarrassed. I put a, a pillow over my face. And I was- but let me ask you this. Uh, that would be, in, you know, essentially a scene in The Hangover. Right. And I would love to see a, the room the day after a Carmen Electra, Dennis Rodman soiree, so to speak. I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't want to like be in there. I mean, I would wear, I would wear a hazmat suit, but you know, but, <laughs> but I'd still like to see a picture of it. Uh, but who would be a more interesting biopic Dennis Rodman or Phil Jackson? Cause Phil Jackson story oh. in episode four. Those are both great films. That's like Godfather 1 and Godfather 2. You're not going to mm-hmm. go wrong. I, 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 you know why they're both good? Is because both of them would forfeit their pride to make a good piece of art. That's why they're good. 
Like both of them would say, yeah, kind of look, you know, in, in Jackson's case, he'd be like, yeah, you have to go into the acid stuff. You have to go into the time where I'm maybe a little unhinged. You have to go into the book I wrote about basketball called Maverick. Um, Rodman would do the same thing. I think, I hope, of course, I don't know these people, but I believe that they would uh, forfeit control a little bit to a filmmaker and writer that would create the most interesting, complex, you know, high quality film. I hope. I, mean, I, I think. think you gotta you gotta go into all that stuff with, with Phil Jackson. I just feel like Phil Jackson because there are so many stories like Robin they're trying to tell right now. And I feel like they've already they've kind of told Robin's story through, you know, 30 for 30. They mm-hmm. haven't really touched Jackson, you know what I mean? And Jackson is just such an interesting character. I mean just you don't really know about his early life. Like you, you've heard about it. Right. To think about this is one of the guys who like helps New York win two championships. No. And not only that, like his NBA career seemed like an Amish rumspringer. I mean, like seriously, he's like tripping on acid. He thinks he's a lion on the beach in LA. He's winning two titles. It's just amazing. And he's like a hippie. I, I, I love all of it. And by the way, born to God squad parents, so basically good. using basketball as, as a way to avoid worrying about the rapture which his parents are, are constantly, you know, harping on. And then, oh, by the way, retires and ends up coaching in Puerto Rico where mayors are pulling guns on refs. His life is awesome. I mean, like, that's crazy. He's Indiana Jones. I mean, like, what? <laughs> Without the whip. Coaching in Puerto Rico before that's, like, even a thing. You know what I mean? Then he's in the CBA when, like, I mean, it's it's like semi-pro. You know what I mean? It's basically Will Ferrell is, is, is Phil Jackson. And fun fact about me, I have an interesting relationship with Phil Jackson. I thought he was black until maybe <laughs> like the late 2000s. Like somebody told me like, no, no, dude, he's, he's white. I was like, his name's Phil Jackson. He looks like my grandfather. You know, like, like, he's got this deep black voice. And mm-hmm. like, he played in the NBA. They're like, no, that's a white guy. I do like research. Right. And yeah, he's a white guy. By the way, <laughs> that's how I felt about Bobby Caldwell forever. Until, really? until I Googled Bobby, because I loved What You Won't Do for Love. And I was like, that doesn't sound totally like a white person. He's very, very white, for, for people who want to know. One more thing before we get to Davey. Uh, Brian, I got to ask you, um, can you recount your favorite memories of the illustrious stint that Dennis Rodman had with your Los Angeles Lakers? Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Yep, that happened. Oh, the stint. Wow, yeah, it, it was very, it was brief enough that I don't remember it. I think it was just, it was a flame out. It was 23 games. It was, he was signed right before the lockout season. Didn't even play the playoffs. Uh, didn't even play the playoffs with the team. And this is, uh, I have to read to you the CBS News, uh, the day, the CBS News article, the day he signed. It's official. The worm is a Laker. Dennis Rodman signed a one-year contract with the LA Lakers on Tuesday. The Associated Press learned and will participate in a limited practice session Wednesday before attending the Grammy Awards with his wife, actress Carmen Electra. A source close to Rodman said the seven-time rebounding champion spent much of Tuesday doing post-production services on the movie Simon Says to be released later this year, but took a break to sign the contract. Could there be anything? He, he took a break to sign the contract. <laughs> oh, God. Thespian. Show some respect. Him co-starring alongside Crispin Glover. Oh, so great. I'm so glad that he could find time in his busy Simon Says schedule to sign a multi-million dollar contract. 
Well, it's all up there on the screen, Sam. All of it. The blood, the sweat, the tears, the effort, um, the artistry. We didn't actually get into your question, which I think uh, we should get into before we move forward, which is Rodman going to Vegas. You know, could that happen now? Absolutely not. But I, don't I, think so. I don't think so. But 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 I did start to think about the why of it. Not only why he wanted to travel, but why he was even allowed to travel. And this is where like Phil Jackson throughout the documentary comes off really well in this movie. He comes away really well. And and I'm just reminded, and I was thinking about for you, Brian, you know, you host that roast battle thing and you have all kinds of strange personalities on. Um, I think Blake Griffin came on for an episode that I saw. I, I could be misremembering this, but no, you're right. Um, it's, I think Pete Davidson's on that one and uh, a female comic that I can't remember, um, Nikki Glaser. Um, and I'm just thinking about the, the, like the, sh- the films I've made, and I've had a couple actors who do horrible things, horrible things, who say, like, I'm not going to do this scene <laughs> unless like, you get oysters for me. That was the first movie I made, and he was a friend. And he was like, I'm not doing this scene unless you go get me oysters from this place downtown. And I remember, I remember I'm, I'm not directed before. And I was like, man, you're my friend. And I know we have a little bit of money on this movie, but it's not a lot of money. And I did it. Like I acquiesced because I was like, you know, I just want to make the best thing possible. And in many ways, Phil Jackson is just letting him get the oysters He's just <laughs> he's just saying, like, I don't want you to do this. I don't think you have to. Can you just go to Atlantic City maybe? But fine, if you need to go to Vegas, go to Vegas. I was thinking about for you, Brian, you must have had some shit like that dealing with all the personalities that have come through that show of yours. Yeah. If you have to do mushrooms, you can do the mushrooms. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> if it's going to make you perform better and you got to do it, yeah, we if you got to do steroids to hit a, a 80 home runs in a season, go ahead and do it. I love how people come to you. I've had that too, where, where they're like, can I, can I do mushrooms? <laughs> and you're like, well, do you want to? <laughs> I, is this on, is this on the set of your movie? Like, I, or is oh, this like yeah. just in general? No, no. I I made a couple of music videos. Yeah, no, trust oh, okay. me. There before the before the music videos, I've had a couple times. Can I do? It? And it's like, well, may you do mushrooms? I guess so. If that's for you, if that's your, if that's <laughs> you made this America video. That was you. Wow, what you know that reference? Although we're talking about the eighties and nineties, that feels like the most dated reference in all this podcast. <laughs> wow. I don't even, I don't even mean that as like a shot against you, Brian. I just feel. That song feels so old. No, that's so that's where we're at, folks. Just uh, <laughs> Sam just insulting our guests and oh. uh, comparing himself to Phil Jackson. So, yeah. <laughs> I was comparing Brian and I to Phil Jackson, just not sure. you, David. No, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, Moses, before we leave, I know you have to go take a bath and, and do your Sunday ritual. Um, we're going to ask this to Davey, but we, we need to ask it to you. Uh, the three of us playing basketball in our pickup game that we do. Okay. Who are we? 
in in relation <laughs> in relation to like this documentary or or wow. modern players too. Who who are you? And then you can also give your assessments of David and I. You know, I'm just a point guard. You know, I uh, I I'd love to pass. I'm a pass first point guard. You really are. Favorite players growing up are Kevin Johnson, John Stockton, uh, Mark Jackson, Rod Rod Strickland. Uh, so I just see myself out there just, you know, passing the ball. You are such a generous basketball player. It's unbelievable. No, they're, they're, you can go too far. That's the problem. That, that's the problem. That's not too look, far. That's not too far. Moses, that's totally fair. Go, no, look, Magic Johnson's known for ta- making the pass cool again. Brian Moses is trying to make the pass Ferris Bueller. Okay. It's, <laughs> it's absurd. It's like, dude, you've got the open shot. Take the damn shot. I set I the pick with that. I for do you agree to with get that. the shot. And you're, you're doing the work, Dave. I mean, it, it, you've got a wonderful game. Just finish it. That's true. There are, there are so many times where I'm like, Brian, just take the shot. You know, maybe I, you don't have the confidence, you guys. Is that, is that what oh, it is? Oh, wow. Oh, sorry. Yikes. Yikes. Yeah, yeah, are we really getting into this? I mean, maybe I don't have the confidence. Oh, I, 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 I feel more comfortable setting you guys up so you guys hit the shot. And then we get back on defense. We got only rejection. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe yeah. just ripped open a bandaid. I didn't want to be like ripped open, you know, or ripped off. Yeah, look, look. Valar's character flaw is that he's a Cavs fan. Your character flaw is that you pass too much. We can get into my character flaw, which there are so many. What about you, Sam? Is it better? Well, yeah, hero ball for the hero ball yeah, for no, so. There we go. I, and that's exactly what I wanted to lead to. I wanted to end on that. <laughs> I love playing against you. I really do. Yeah, I. It's fun to beat guys like you, you know, because you really do play really hard. Um, you score a lot of points. It's really hard to stop you, so it's fun to play defense against you. But man, when you beat you, oh, you hate it so much, and it feels very gratifying and satisfying. Absolutely. <laughs> Let me go ahead and endorse that, because no one gets more pissed when he loses than San Francisco. <laughs> it's just, it's just wonderful. Like. I feel bad for the garbage cans in the gym that we that we're at because they have just been just beaten senselessly by by Sam after after just wonderful losses to mostly me. Um, yeah. Get him, yeah. baby. Get him. Wow. Now now whose wound are we picking at? Um I I do I did wonder that. I definitely think I'm one of the worst, like sore losers that exist in pickup basketball. I get, no doubt. I get very angry. It's true. No doubt. It's true. And that's yeah. And I used to be hor- horrific at that. Like I used to be just the source of losers. But uh, I guess with my advancing age, that's that's you know I've learned to. Are you talking about maturity? I, you could say that. I look at it as wisdom. Oh, wisdom. Yeah. Got it. It's wisdom. Right. I, look, look, but I will say this. I don't blame the other people on my team. I take... No, no, I, no, 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 yeah. I blame myself if we lose. Mm-hmm. It, I always say it's my fault. Right. I always say that. Well, when you consistently try to put the team on your back every possession and don't pass it, then yeah, I mean, you know, it is your call, yeah. It's mostly your fault, yeah. <laughs> no, that's just how it goes. Huh? It's like when you, when you say it's not your fault, like you actively pointing it out, means that you really are blaming those guys. Yeah. And, you know, he's from Chicago. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You might have heard. <laughs> Brian, I love you so much. I wish we could be playing. I hope to be doing it Likewise. soon. Good God. I'm never passing you guys the ball again. No, oh, thank God. <laughs> That's all, this was all set up. So this is not even a podcast. You know what I mean? God, Brian. This jump starts me, and I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should go. Why is Sam shooting? <laughs> And he went on to become president of the United States. 
God, that would be a dream. Thank you, Phil. <laughs> this is really a concern. Brian Moses, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, man. So long. Peace be with you. Okay. Um, why don't we call up Davey Rothbart in just one second? Okay. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. We hope you're enjoying this week's podcast. We're trying to raise money for the good people over at Feeding America. In a country that wastes billions of pounds of food each year, it's almost shocking that anyone in America goes hungry. Yet every day there are millions of children and adults who do not get the meals they need to thrive. Feeding America works to get nourishing food from farmers, manufacturers, and retailers to people in need. At the same time, we also seek to help the people we serve to build a path to a brighter, food-secure future. These people are especially doing great work amid the COVID-19 crisis, so if you can, we'd really appreciate it if you make a donation to what they're doing. You can learn more about their cause at www.feedingamerica.org. You might know our next guest, Davey Rothbart, from his work on NPR's This American Life. He's a best-selling author, the creator of Found Magazine, and also a filmmaker. His latest film, 17 Blocks, was nominated for an Indie Spirit Award and comes out later this year. And his high school basketball documentary, Medora, about the losing his team in Indiana, which won an Emmy Award and is available on Amazon, iTunes, YouTube, or wherever you stream movies. Let's get to it. Davey Rothbart, look at you in that Detroit Pistons t-shirt. Oh, yeah. Truly the enemy. Not just Detroit Pistons, bad boys. 89 God. bad boys. And even better, <laughs> Central Division champs, too. Not even, not even the NBA title champs. Central Division champs. I mean, this is uh, very specific. This is, uh, you can't forget about, you play the regular season for a reason. So you can make t-shirts like this. Uh, that is the, that is the most niche, amazing Detroit ephemera. I've of course, seen. of course. Only you would have a Central Division shirt <laughs> from that. Oh, I guess it, props to my props to my wife Margaret for uh, locating this thing. I, I do have my original Bad Boys T-shirt from '89 that I wear on occasion. I, I think it actually this that one might be my dad's. We had matching Bad Boys T-shirts, um, and, <laughs> and uh, I, I still wear that one. You know, it's one. This is, looks like maybe. Well, I don't know. I was going to say maybe it's a like a reprint, but, but the thing is, who would reprint the Central Division? Who's right, reprinting right. this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, actually, Macy's is carrying a line of it. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think it hot topic. I think it might just be an actual vintage shirt, but it was just like never worn. Right. It came out like of the, a warehouse somewhere. Like the guy who designed that's just like, oh, they went on to win the championship. I had no idea. I was just, I like stopped at Central Division. I was just like, we're, we're good, man. We are good. <laughs> Uh, it actually also looks it also looks official as opposed to like the bad boy shirts that I see. Yeah, those are like, I mean, and they're they're now like official like the bad boys official things. But they but were like bootlegged. Like, yeah, they're like bootlegged street corner. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, th yeah. This does have a little more of a of a like a vibe like it like it could have been sold at like a JC Penny for sure. Thing. Yeah, Coles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. We brought you on here because you provide a very specific shall we say, um, knowledge about this era yeah. and about this time. Uh, first and foremost, you are from the great state of Michigan. Yep. Right. Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti native. Yep. Um, diehard Pistons fan. Yeah, I was, uh, so I was, I was 13. Uh, let's see. I, I was 12 in 87 mm -hmm. when, uh, when they lost in the playoffs to the Celtics. You, you you make fun of me for that play sometimes. You 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 replay the the radio call of it. <laughs> and there's a steal by Bird underneath the DJ lays it in. <laughs> you really you Johnny know how to turn, turn, turn the screws to me. Well, so just so you know, 
when you when you do that to me, you're bringing back trauma from my youth because I, I remember being in the backseat of a 87, no, an 86 Ford Aerostar um, uh, with my family and uh, and bursting into tears. Oh wow! Listening listening to that same radio call that you that that, that you it takes derives such pleasure out of. If it gives you any comfort, we just had my uh, I had just went through the same. Uh, the destruction Lowe, the, the craggy yes the craggy low shot yeah. they they laid it on thick i on do the... remember watching that i okay mm-hmm. I'm, glad, I'm glad they they gave you a little bit back mm-hmm. uh so you know the next year of course um pistons had a three to two lead in the nba finals in 88 and i think it's it's kind of under talked about under known because you know the bulls it was such a huge deal for the to get the three-peat but the pistons were they were up three to two you know they went on to win the next two championships but they were up three games to two and that's when there was some really bad foul calls at the end of the game. Uh, and I think it might have been against Rodman. It was like a phantom uh, foul, they called. He didn't wasn't nowhere near Kareem. And foul was called. Kareem shot some free throws. Lakers won game six and then won game seven. And uh, even though Isaiah famously played on a broken ankle and scored 24 points in the fourth quarter, it's sometimes talked about as one of the best playoff performances of all time and they, and they, and they still, they lost. Um, so, so they did go on to win the next two championships and, and, and it was a thrill for me as a, you know, a young, so I was 14 when they won uh, in 89 and yeah, I, I, I can't say that many moments in, in my life have surpassed that. I mean, I, I got married. That was pretty cool. I got, <laughs> I had my, my first, my first kid two years ago, my son, and that was fantastic. You know your first NBA title because every every fan experiences that that thrill of, of right. having won it as though they were on the court making the game winning shot. You know I I don't like to rank greatest moments of my life. I just like to you know put them all together in like a a sort of a nebulous top ten. Right. Mosaic. And yeah. by the way, your wife and kid would also like you to not rank those three events. <laughs> well, no, they would like them me to rank them. They would just like to for me to rank them <laughs> yeah. one and one and two. <laughs> which 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 you can neither confirm or deny that you would do, which I understand. I understand. Yeah, yeah. I put a block on her phone so she won't listen to this broadcast. Oh great. Uh Davey, I have a question for you. Um because episodes three and four are about uh, this Pistons team, yeah. the bad boys, in relation to being these kind of uh, arch nemesis and rivals to the Bulls. Yeah. Um, do you have any kind of residual guilt about being a fan of a team full of a bunch of idiots that uh, played basketball in a way that is so abhorrent, so 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 morally degrading to the game? I just I just want to start with that question. Well, I I. I... It didn't. It doesn't surprise me for you to go there, a dirty Bulls fan with your dirty stash right now. Um, <laughs> if, if you could see Sam Fragoso right now, so good. And we we just had Brian Moses on, who hosts the roast battle. Oh, I, I know Moses. Now we're really just doing a roasting of each other. It's fantastic. <laughs> you look good, and, and your game is incredible. I play ball with you and with your co-host Dave Villar. I play ball with Brian Moses. You know, you guys are all talented um, on the court. And and you and you and you look good too, but I, I will. I, I think it's your credit. I'm seeing like a like a early '80s like baseball card. You, like <laughs> like you look like a like a filthy reliever from. I don't mean body hygiene. I just mean like some guy that's like a a, a killer out of the bullpen for the Brewers. And right, like, right, right, yeah. right, right. Like the long lost Necro brother. Mm. Right, 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 right. Mm. right. So immediately going to ad hominem attacks. Totally fine. Okay, Go on. Okay, okay. You know, look, it's it's easy. The bad boys were bad, and and yet. 
when when you're a fan of a team, you don't perceive them as bad. There was some reason for the for their physical play, and I, and I actually think that there's a hockey connection because, you know, in hockey, and I'm not a, I'm not a huge hockey guy, but but growing up in the Detroit area and the, the Red Wings were also great at that time, and they, they would have these skill players like Iserman and Fedorov, who would get killed if it wasn't for their enforcers. You know, they had their Bob Proberts, Joey Kosers, who had their back. And it was those guys' jobs to make sure that no one laid a cheap hit on them. Isaiah was one of the, yeah, he was mouthy, but he he was one of the jaw with, the, like, you know, Gary Payton took over his mantle of jawing later. But but Isaiah was one of the most skilled small guards of all time. Right. And, and Joe Dumars, who was the quiet assassin, was shared his backcourt. It was Joe Dumars, of course, who... He was like Perseus chopping off Medusa's head when he would go toe-to-toe with Jordan. He was, you know, famous for shutting him down. I have nothing but love for Joe Dumars, by the way. Yeah. The, the city of Chicago mm-hmm. loves Joe Dumars. Loves Joe Dumars. I, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. And Joe D is, is an incredible class act. And I've met him a couple of times, you know, so, and, and I've heard stories just as a, as a person, as, as well as how he, you know, his play on the court. When you're on top and when you're when you're a good team, you know, sparked fury in people through beating them and letting them know about it before trash talk was really a thing. But, you know, people would be gunning for, for those guys and some of their other skill players. And so I think Mahorn, Rick Mahorn and, and Bill Lambier and Dennis Rodman, you know, they, they took it upon themselves to make sure that if, if anyone came at those guys, they were going to, you know, return the favor, maybe disproportionately. <laughs> we always saw it as pissed fans as like look these guys are looking out for for our superstars there were some ugly episodes carl malone i always hated um, <laughs> mostly because he swung an elbow and gave isaiah 33 stitches you know uh totally uncalled for and not to mention carl's like you know like southern country like a uh, snake shoe wearing you know funky ways <laughs> but, but, I, but, 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 but but that was just one example of many of, of folks who would take cheap shots at, at our Pistons. I don't think our guys were abhorrent. I don't, I mean, I know the style of play wasn't the most graceful and beautiful always, but it was exuberant. And, you know, when you look at those clips of young Dennis Rodman, like he would play with furious might and he would probably take some cheap shots himself, but, but he was playing like a, like you would want your own eight year old kid to play at the park with glorious uh, love of the game. You mentioned uh, Gary Payton before. Yeah. He's interviewed in it, and he drops just a classic line. He's just like, Dennis Rodman is the fuck-up person. He just fucks everything up. I mean, and it's just, it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. He means his personality and, and the way. No, no, no. No, 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 no. He, he meant. The, on the he, court. On the yeah. court. Or either he does or, or Rodman himself is just like, I was like just that rash. I was that rash that just like everybody hated because that's what he did, and he was just, oh, Jesus, Rodman's on me. This is going to be a nightmare for 48 minutes. What, what's the what's the Yogi Bear quote? 90% of the game is half mental? Rodman understood the mental part of the game and knew right. how to take people out of their games, and, and I, I try to do that when we play. <laughs> uh, I don't have the hugest game. I, my slam dunk has, has faded uh, as I get older. You know, here's, here's something I always say. I learned this. This was I attributed to Rodman um, by a friend of mine. He said when when the ball just naturally didn't rotate to the player he was defending. Maybe it's because he was defending him. Who knows? But he would say, "Oh, they're freezing you out, huh? Why are they freezing you out?" 
Yeah. And then the guy would start to like look around and be like, yeah, why aren't the teammates giving me the ball? Like what the hell's going on? I use that. I use that when I play. I say that all the time. I say <laughs> yeah. that all the time. All it works. The time. It works. People get frustrated with their teammates. And right. I love that team. I mean, even the, the role players, yeah. almost especially, you know, John Sapp, Spider Sally, who would, was just a comedic presence was just so funny. So, so funny. I don't want to let you off the hook so quickly because you just you just pivoted and and called their style of play exuberant. And, yeah, and yeah. the way you spun that, I, I was like, wow, is Sean Spicer on this podcast? Wow. The, don't do the, that to me. The unbelievable way in which you came on this show and just spun the verbiage I, well, is well, so let me, impressive. Let me ask you then. What, I mean, what are your specific like? Like, what are your specific charges that well, you're so, that so, you're so, that you're levying against my beautiful, graceful, gentle, and kind <laughs> and exuberant Detroit Pistons? Yeah, I wouldn't use those adjectives. Uh, but 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 I'll say to your point. Um, the second part of what I was going to say is that when when the bad behavior is exhibited by the folks that you love on behalf of the team that you like, you right. are willing to excuse and potentially just turn a blind eye to, yeah, you know, bad behavior. You're willing to be negligent if it's in, if it's in the name of your team. And that was yeah. true even in the Rashid Wallace, Ben Wallace days of the, of the team that you like. It was true when I had Tyson Chandler on the Bulls, it, it, the Joe Kim Noah on the Bulls. There's all kinds of players where you're like, if they're on the other team, I hate you. But if you're on my team, I'm okay with you. I love you. And I think that's, yeah, I mean, I think you you spin it to yourself in a way and you, you find a way to embrace it. Yeah. Mental gymnastic. Yeah. I still never quite understood though. I mean, look, I was young. I was 14, 15 during this era. And people now telling the Pistons story of that era, like it's easy for them to just pick a narrative that, that's convenient to them. Right. I'm not totally clear on why what the Pistons did was worse than what other teams were doing. I'll answer it first, but ju- just as a Bulls fan. Yeah. I think now that we are all people that love NBA in 2020... Yeah. even as it doesn't exist in this quarantine, um, something we're all really aware of. Um, and, it, and it happened throughout the 90s and early 2000s with folks like Penny Hardaway in Grant Hill. Um, all these people that had this kind of incredible potential whose careers were cut short because of injuries. And injury is just a part of the game. It, it It's inextricably linked to playing a physical sport like basketball, like football, like baseball. But the thing that bothers me about the Pistons, it upped the numbers of potential injuries. It played the game in a way that had a disregard for someone's health. And in that way, um, that bothers me. Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumars, Mike, Mark Aguirre even, got no problem with them. Yeah. Lambeer and Mahorn pushing people when the play was over into the stands of potential cameramen, which again, I'm sure there are cameramen, DPs on the sidelines yeah. who got hurt. <laughs> I that when when it goes, look, you know me, Davey, and we talked about this uh, before with Brian. I am the most competitive pickup basketball. You know that I'm an asshole, and I and I feel guilt about being an asshole and being ridiculous. 
But when it ve- I've, I've seen worse. Yeah, well, I'm thank you. Thank you. Thank God. But I will say when it veers into um risking someone's like health, yeah. that's where I take umbrage. That's where I'm like, ow, oh, I could be a dick, but if it means someone getting hurt, I'm not interested in that. I agree and disagree. I think that, you know, Carl Malone was not thinking of other people's health, you know, when, when he elbowed Isaiah and, you know, took him out of commission for weeks and left him with 33 stitches. I don't think Carl Malone is considered a dirty player, but you know, like there was, that was completely unprovoked. I think a lot of other players, you know, so I, I mean, my question would be what players got injured by the Pistons or maybe they increased the risk of injury, but it just didn't happen so much. There was one horrendous injury uh, in the playoffs against the Milwaukee Bucks. Larry Kristoviak shattered his leg, um, but he wasn't even touched by any Piston player. I can't remember any other really bad injuries. Those guys were not the most uh, graceful or talented players, and and I think their pursuit of victory overwhelmed what I consider to be like ethical play. Right. Um, At at the same time, like, yeah, it's like in baseball, you've got these these – pitchers throwing 100 miles an hour fastballs and, and sometimes they'll for a competitive advantage like they'll brush back a player because the guy's out a little too far over the plate and so they'll brush them back and sometimes they hit them you know i i think of it kind of in that way where it's like those guys were kind of demanding some physical space on on the low block and if they weren't getting it they would they let people know so i mean i i can't i can't forgive it now in retrospect um but 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 i also don't i also don't know that it quite deserve the reputation it receives I, it'd be interesting to break it down and see like we're more players injured against the, those bad boy pistons than other teams you know well i don't look i, I don't even think it, we need to even get that highfalutin so to speak it's just basically the basis uh or it's as basic as michael jordan is fun to watch when he dunks and does these you know ballet type moves and brendan malone essentially says with his Jordan rules, which was, you know, there was some rules here, which were like, push him out to the elbow, force him to his left. But they effectively said, look, they're not going to call anything. So when he goes up, basically commit aggravated assault. And they did. And I mean, it's, it's there on tape. So whether or not it's injured or anything like that, it's just more fun to see that. And, and ultimately, and, and I get it as, as a fan, cause I've cheered for teams that are, ugly to watch uh it, it, for lack of a better term yeah the, i remember the and, knicks the knicks uh mm-hmm, with, with mm-hmm. morning well the knicks with uh mason and ewing yeah ewing mason and starks and what have you which which they get into in later episodes but it's simply michael jordan and they've got you know all of the montages that they have in this yeah. documentary are just wonderful you know, Jordan going in and making these impossible yeah. up and unders and what have you, where, you know, against the Hawks, he's able to do that and like still kind of get it up or whatever, where against the Pistons, no. I mean, like, nope, like just bear hug. You're not even getting the ball off type thing. It's it's lame in that context. I, I can't like try to defend <laughs> it forever. I mean, I, 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 I'm a fan of finesse basketball. You know, I think that's what the sport's about. My feeling is in a pickup game, if somebody has a breakaway, if they've worked hard enough to like drive and break away. You're a finesse player in pickup basketball. Yeah, I am. And I don't, I don't like people banging or like, I don't like someone, someone intentionally fouls you. I don't like players banging unnecessarily. and, And I just think I agree with you. The game is more, it's just more aesthetically pleasing and more exciting to watch when it's, 
when it's played in that way. I, I think I think when it's your team and and it's an effective strategy to help you win, then then uh, you forgive it. One, it's like the the bad boys was their image, and they prided themselves in it. You know, you see those posters from the '80s and early '90s. Of, <laughs> there are some great ones you can Google of like Lambier, Mahorn, Rodman, and like dressed in leather and you know, looking tough, sunglasses and stuff. They're pretty hilarious. Some of my friends had those on their like, you know, high school bedroom walls and dorm, <laughs> dorm, dorm room walls. It maybe became the, whatever, the, the theme of the team or the, or mm-hmm. the personality of the team. But I mean, also, did you mm-hmm. know that MC Hammer's songs um, were, were, were another theme of um, Hammer Time? Was was enough, was was just as much as Bad Boys, and they would play. Uh, you can't touch this before and after, like every game. I do remember that. It it, it was in the Thirty for Thirty doc, which is so mm-hmm. good on the Bad Boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's a little myopic to think that that was the full identity of the team. When to me, it was like one fifteen percent of the of the identity of the team. Yeah. Not to mention at the same time too, and I've heard this from people from Detroit or Michigan, it's, you know, kind of taking on the attitude of the city and the, uh, of the population itself. I think yeah. you know, it's reflected in that. City now. was a tough, uh, prided itself on being a tough city and they had mm. a chip on their shoulder and, and jobs were, it, it was a desperate time in our region, you know, jobs were fleeing the state and the audio industry was crumbling. And so if someone came at them to be able to knock them down and, you know, yeah, yeah that's a great point look this is what the documentary shows and and it's i almost feel bad that we bring you on here to you know kind of defend the, the bad boys so no, to speak. I'm, I'm happy to I'm, I'm proud to represent our, our perspective and i and i remember being so happy when when they did beat us and and isaiah walked off the you know I, he still dogged for for walking off the court this is my question this is gonna be my question without shaking mj's hand i i was i was happy <laughs> But I have to figure out how to explain it. But I was happy because I was like, you know what? F that guy and F the Bulls. Those guys are punks. I hated the Bulls and I hated Jordan and he was so full of himself. You know, I, I did keep a couple of Wheaties boxes with Jordan on them just because he was Jordan and he was cool, but I hated him. And I was and I was like, you know what? I'd be pissed off, too. And like, like, who, who, who gives a shit about a handshake? You know, like, let's. We're out of here. And so now in retrospect, I can say, yeah, it wasn't the most, you know, you like to see players lose and then hug it out and what this and that. But it's like, that's how hot the competitive fire burned. Right. Isaiah and the rest of the team. And I kind of respect that. Right. So let me give some context. In the 87-88 season, I believe um, the Pistons played the Celtics. The Pistons beat the Celtics. Isaiah Thomas says of that moment, uh, as they beat the Celtics, that uh, that's just how it was back then. When you lost, you left the floor. And that was true of the Celtics team that they beat, that they had to keep losing to over and over to in the 80s. Yeah. And that was true in the 91 Eastern Conference Finals against the Bulls. That's just how it was back then. When you lost, you left the floor. That's what he says now. I I don't know if that's... Totally true. I mean, certainly for teams that had any bad blood, or why would you go shake their hand and hug it out? Like, like. I agree. I agree. You, you know, yeah, I mean, that, that's yeah. Of course, yeah. It's yeah. Like, it, yeah. I, I actually but, feel frustrated now. <laughs> like to this day, like now when I watch when my team loses and I see them going off and smiling and and congratulating the other team, like 
within 30 seconds after the game. Like, I'm like, I, I thought you cared more about winning, you know, as much about winning as I did or more. And, and you don't seem like you are right now. That be well, I will say this though. One thing about this documentary that's been borne out in the first four episodes, you know how you always hear from the old guard that, oh, you know, we didn't, we weren't friends like you, you guys are now in terms of the current NBA players and Durant is too good of friends with LeBron and LeBron's too good of friends with everyone and, and so on and so forth. Like, you know, in the first episode or maybe it was episode two when they're playing the Celtics, Michael and Danny Ainge are shooting rounds of golf before a playoff game in 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 86. That was Danny like, Ainge. That was Danny Ange. What did I say? Danny Ainge? I just said yeah. Danny Ainge, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah that, I mean, but, that, but that was Danny Ainge. Danny Ainge was the fourth best person on that team. You no, can, he wasn't the fourth best person. I mean, you, you show can, some respect. You can, Danny, Danny Ainge wasn't the fourth best person. I also think person. there's a difference between rivals. You know, if it's a team that's going to expect it to dominate you and they do, I can understand why you're a little more friendly you know i t- mm-hmm. by the way i totally agree with the old vanguard philosophy i i really don't understand why durant and lebron would be friends be friends when your careers are over like and i just don't really understand why you'd want to be friends because with someone. who else do you identify with i mean you're in such a weird strata of humanity that there's who else can you really talk to and say identify hey, with your teammates identify with in Durant's case identify with other people who haven't won uh, too many times until the last couple of years identify with anyone else don't identify with the person that you have to beat in the finals every year in my opinion that's just how I'm wired I don't know why you would ever befriend that person I really don't I, I'm I'm okay with it if it's not in your face, like on the court, right after losing a huge game, like like I think if, if it's in the off season, you guys want to hang out. I, you know, Isaiah and Magic Johnson were were best buzz. Yeah, that's and they fine. Kissed, they agree, kissed on the I, I court. They kissed on the that. court. I agree with that. That's true. But they, they were. I mean, their their friendship preceded their rivalry. You know, first of all, and and Magic was hanging out at Larry's farm in Indiana during you know during conversations. Okay, you know what? Like I, I I changed my position on this. Let me change my position. You can be friends in the off-season, but you have been paid actor-level money more than that. Act your fucking part. Be the performer and hate the person (laughs) in the moment because it's good TV, it's good drama, it's good competition. You're properly compensated. You're properly compensated 51% NBA players. Act the fucking part. Don't like that person. Do not smile after you just lost a seven-game series. What the hell is wrong with you? Thank you. I hate you you guys are my friends, and I hate you, motherfuckers. When I lose (laughs) to you and pick up basketball, and I'm not paid a dime. I'm not paid a dime. Wow. Hate him, gentlemen. The Fragoso rules. Come on. I actually agree. I co-sign 100%. My God. I totally agree. God, it's like these kids didn't go to drama school or something. Come on Uh, now, (laughs) Davey. Did you? have any clue that Dennis Rodman would end up being the worm big AKA (laughs) by the way, shout out to basketball reference, by the way, the, not only do they compile and archive just incredible stats in a very wonderful manageable uh, site, but they also do the nicknames. Uh, Do you know all of Dennis Rodman's nicknames? Uh, I, you know, I am curious to hear him now. I, I I believe that some will sound familiar to me, but uh, uh, warm, do you want to go? Obviously, 
You want to go back and forth? I got some of them right here. Okay. Dennis the Menace. Country. Just called Psycho. Country. I remember Country. It's like, like the worm was like used so frequently <laughs> that, that those other ones I do sort of remember. Oh, we're not done, Davey. We're not done. We're not done. But Davey, what do you think about this one? Rodzilla. I, I do remember that one, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Demo, Demolition Man, obviously. Yeah. There's one more. El Loco. <laughs> Don't know if I remember that one. Which? That makes sense. I mean, I think some of these were the pet nicknames of like a certain columnist at like a third tier <laughs> newspaper, but it, that who would use the same one relentlessly. You know, it would, oh it would be God. some Rodzilla posters made and stuff, but it was like no one that I knew really like just called him Rodzilla. Well, <laughs> let's keep in mind the, with the El, the El Loco uh, name so... probably came from his stint in the ABA. Uh, not with the Orange County Crush, which he played with, but with the Tijuana Dragons. So um, uh, no, not many I think, people remember I actually that. think it came from the Kalamazoo Gazette. Actually, uh, uh, oh, uh, uh, nice pull, nice pull. I mean that that those were the kind of outlets that were covering the Pistons. You know, the Pistons were <laughs> at the time. If you think about the way newspapers were, I mean, there were there were Piston beat reporters in towns all over the state. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't just. Uh, reprinting AP stories. Look, I, I remember one game. I, I always knew that his skills were were incredible. Another thing I borrowed from Robman was because uh, he, he wasn't that tall, really. You know, his timing was so impeccable. Other guys would go up for the rebound and be bringing it down with two hands, and he would pop in the middle and poke it out with one. And that's a that's a move I definitely have learned and, and do all the time. You don't have to be the, the first one to get the rebound. You just have to pick your spots. I went to a game once. I didn't get to a lot of Pistons games. They played up in the Palace of Auburn Hills, which is like almost two hours. Right. Still the Metro Detroit area from where I live, but it was almost two hours away. But I did go to a Nuggets game when the Nuggets had Paul West had as their coach, and they would try to wow. shoot and let four seconds of uh, mm-hmm. of uh, having possession of the basketball. And But Rodman went for like 34, uh, including a couple three-pointers, and uh, I think he had 23 rebounds in that game, but and you and you realize like actually he's he's playing the game as his role demands it. You know he's they didn't need another guy shooting from the outside. They didn't need his scoring, but but it made you realize like this guy is can score on occasion. And I, and later you know because I moved to Chicago, I lived there during the whole Jordan era, and so I and I got to see Robin play and his offense was. I mean, it wasn't just the rebounding, which was huge, but he would score eight points, 10 points a game, and they were critical baskets. He, he had that talent that he just never yeah. flexed it. No. He, yeah, was I mean, like a, he was like a savant. I mean, the, the way they break down the sort of mathematics that he did in rebounding in these episodes, I, it was the first time I thought, oh, you're really n- not a normal person. I, I, I should have known that by the hair, but... It, it 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 was his understanding of geometry. Yeah, that was yeah. so fascinating. I was like, "Oh, you're actually really special. You're special. In, you're special in ways that go beyond you dating Madonna. You're right. really special." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In the in the documentary, he actually sits there with the Pistons. He had a friend after practice and after games. He would just be like, "Hey, go ahead and shoot." assuming that he would hopefully miss and he would miss a lot, the friend, whoever it was. 
And he would just be like, Didn't they ask you to shoot? Doing- Didn't he ask you to shoot? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, often. Uh, He'd come down to the park near my parents' house <laughs> just, just to practice. Oh, we threw up some bricks, let me tell you. He scouted us out. He was like, I hear there's a grade school on a dirt road in Ypsilanti, Michigan, where I can really find some motherfuckers that can't shoot. <laughs> but the way, the way he's talking about it is also, he's like talking about it like Yo-Yo Ma talking about cello or Frank Gehry talking about architecture. He also watched the film and would study dudes the way the ball, so Larry Legend shoots like this, and the rotation is like this, so then therefore the ball will carry him off the backboard in such a manner and, and what have you. That level of specificity, you know, it's it's fascinating that nobody, I mean, Kevin Love on some level is like that, he's not that in terms of rebounding, but it's it's just incredible. I, I don't know if there's any ever been anybody that's been maybe even so specialized as, as Rodman. When, when people use mental aspects of their game to overcome physical um, deficiencies, you know, I mean, Rodman was, he was strong and he, you know, when he was young, he could, it's not like he was the most physically gifted player. He was, he just knew where to be, how to get there, when to right. be there. And you know what he's like, it's like every time Richard Jenkins appears in a movie, you're like, oh, yeah, you're really good at doing the thing you know how to do. And you don't deviate from it, and you don't do more than it, and you don't take over the movie, and you just do the goddamn thing you're supposed to do. And he kills it every time. Shout, shout out to the, uh, the Last Shift film Richard Jenkins stars in that was at, uh, that was at Sundance. It was. This year, and, and Miranda July had uh, also cast him in a starring role he is so, totally unrelated, and no one listening has seen this movie. But um, that's a really good movie, and he's fantastic. I in think it. I see your point, which is yeah, like Jenkins is a is a master craftsman and and, and a supporting role. But he and, he and he does not go outside of the parameters that the scene requires. And Rodman did not ever leave those parameters. He knew what he was good at, and he did it every time. He liked to win, and and he trusted the people that he worked with. I mean, he 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 found himself onto some great teams. Davey, as a documentarian, uh, you've made a film about athletes before. Mm-hmm. Is this the kind of project you would ever be interested in? As, as someone who's been on the back end of these kind of movies that take years and years of your life, laboring not only in shooting but in post production. Is this something you'd want to do? A, a project like this doc series? Yeah. I really respect a, a series like this. The depth of research, you know, of looking through this archival footage. It's like that Apollo Apollo 11. Is that the, the uh, Oscar-nominated film from last year, the documentary, where they took all this archival footage shot of the first moon landing. I mean, incredible. And it was pulled from thousands and thousands of hours of archival footage. Um, I respect films like that to death and I respect this doc series because I think they're under underknown stories from within a very deeply known story. And that's sort of magic act. And I think they're doing an incredible job. Projects I work on do tend to be, I've made a few documentary films and they're all just sort of cinema verite. Just like the part I enjoy is just spending time with people and, and like, and watching their life kind of unfold around me. 
rather than reaching into a sort of deep reservoir of existing footage um, and trying to pull stories out of there, I, I like just having the camera on, becoming a fly on the wall and, and just watching people forget about the camera and just live their life and being there to capture some really intense and special moments. So you think Jordan is in 2020, 2019, 2018, when they were shooting this, completely incapable of forgetting that there's a camera there. I mean, yeah, look, he's, I think he's trying to be candid and he's probably finding a new level of honesty, but I don't think that you're, you're just not seeing him in a completely authentic light. Uh, I made this basketball documentary about um, high school kids in rural Indiana town. Factories had shut down. Meth had moved in pretty, pretty rough times in this town. Some of the kids were living homeless. Some were playing in work boots because they didn't have money for sneakers and and, you know, the first few weeks we were in town shooting, me and my friend Andrew Cohn, um, you know, the kids were hyper aware of the cameras. But within weeks, they just became oblivious to them because we were just there filming all the time. And and we were able to capture just real moments, intense moments from their life. You know, a kid calling his dad who he's never met, trying to reach his dad on the phone and, and talk to him for the first time. Just things like that where it's like watching real life unfold. And I just think maybe if if people had... If, if, if somebody had embedded with Michael Jordan in like 85 and just been at his side for the following several years, <laughs> right? You, you know, or, or maybe in 89 even, you know, and just been at his side for, for long enough that he forgot the camera was there, I think you would have probably caught some moments, you know, as savvy as Michael is about media management and everything. Like you might have seen some really unexpected moments and some, you know, who is the right, real Michael Jordan? I think this doc series is doing the best job we could ever hope to, uh, to, to give us a sense of that, I just still feel like there's a, a, going to be a guarded nature to it. Yeah. So you, we didn't bring you on here just because you are a diehard Pistons fan. Uh, you also, as you said, you moved to Chicago in what year? Uh, 96. 1996. Yeah. And you took on a profession that... Not many people are privy to, and but many people know about. Yeah, I, I, I became a, uh, a ticket scalper, uh, street hustler in Chicago during the heyday of, of the Bulls dynasty. Uh, I was there essentially 96 to 01. You know, mm -hmm. Mostly it was 96 to 98 were the years I was most heavily into it. But it, was, it, it wasn't just Chicago Bulls. I, I sold tickets to, on the street. In, outside the United Center for the Blackhawks, Wrigley Field for the Cubs, Comiskey Park for the Sox. Um, there was uh, concerts, of course, of all shapes and sizes, uh, theater, stomp, river dance, uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. There was Barney on Ice at the Rosemont Horizon. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, you were probably at that show with your family. <laughs> you, I do have a few years on you. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, first it was the mustache, then it was Joe and the Technicolor the dream coat. But the, but the bulls, of course, I mean, look, that was the big ticket. That was, everyone was freaking out about not just Chicago locals, but I mean, you had people coming from around the country and really across the world, right? Just come The people wanted to come. They would pay whatever it costs. They wanted to see the bulls play and they wanted to watch Michael Jordan in person, you know? And so it was an extremely lucrative time and not, not just for me, but you know, an entire industry really sprouted up around it. Probably 50 ticket brokers in Chicago that were each had their own big staff and were um, making money hand over fist. Uh, 
from, you know, because, because these tickets would sell for thousands of hundreds and, and sometimes thousands of dollars. My role was, it was, it was interesting. I, I worked with one ticket broker in particular, but, but also I was kind of, uh, uh, as a, as a street scalper, as a street guide, as they would call the, the, the guys who would actually take tickets out to the street, I would work with a lot of different brokers and maybe it would be, maybe they had extra tickets to a game. This is before StubHub, of course. And, and it's just a world of like phones and faxes and pagers. And, and uh, mm-hmm. I mean, and it's filled with these crazy, unique, um, wild characters. Uh, some of the brokerages were, you know, were big corporations and they had 30 employees and, you know, but there was so many individual operators kind of like me, you know, but, <laughs> but, but just wild figures like Monet, Joe, uh, mm-hmm. blue man, Ross, 35th, <laughs> 35th street, Eddie, Lars lobster. Some of them didn't have that colorful names. They were the most crazy motherfuckers. If, if like the guy, Scotty, Scotty and Lars, they were, they were the craziest. They didn't even need uh, a, a moniker. Pippin. No, not Scotty Pippen. Just this guy named Scotty. Um, whoa, whoa, whoa! Hold on. You can't. You, did you have? Come tell me you had a name. Tell me you had a name. I, I did have a name. I did have a name. Um, actually, I my first day kind of on the job. There was I'm Davy. I don't know why they, they couldn't call me Davy, but there was there was a guy associated with AAA Tickets, which was the main outfit that I would kind of work for and help out. Uh, there was a guy Dave that worked there. He quit like a month later. They were like, "Yeah, you need you need a handle." So what's your handle going to be? And the guy that ran this place was was called Lobster. And uh, he was like, what's your handle? And I, I don't know why it came to me. I think I was reading uh, Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver. And, uh, but he was talking about what a great guy Huey P. Newton was. And I, and I, and I had a friend named Huey, too, from college. So I, I just uh, – Huey popped into my mind. And now in Chicago, you know, 25 years later, if you talk to certain scalpers around concert or, or sports venues and ask them about Huey, like they'll, they'll know – they'll remember me. They'll know who I am. And um, as Huey, nice. I, I made, I made a ton of money. You know, you'd go out there. Sometimes you had tickets already to sell. Sometimes you would just, um, show up and buy and sell for an hour or two before a game. And you could make, you could go home making nothing. You could go home, you could go home with a thousand bucks for two or three hours of work. You know, <laughs> there was, there was every manner of which way to get tickets. And And the other thing was, you know, at the time, like, Beyond the 50 real ticket brokers, there was a hundred more guys who would just put an ad in the back of the Sun Times or the Tribune, saying, you know, buy and sell tickets. You know, mm-hmm. say you're a season ticket holder, or say you you work at a law firm downtown and you're able to get hold of four tickets, and you're like, you know, maybe I could just sell two of these and make some money. There's like 150 ads in the back of the Tribune. You know, you're just going to call which some random one, so it might be a big well-known outfit or it might be just some guy who's got a pager you know working out of his shed (laughs) and and, uh and so you know there was guys who would um they would go to these ticket masters like like in the mall like (laughs) and they would just ask trying to buy like one single ticket because even a single ticket if 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 you were able to buy it the face value was like 75 bucks for a lower level ticket and you could sell that thing for 500 you know damn and and tickets would be released periodically mysteriously did you know for example that i mean carries on to this day but at the time david stern had four best seats in the arena reserved for every game happening in every nba venue every night and those would often not be freed up until a couple hours before game time i mean he's not going to go to 20 nba games in the same night and he's probably going to know ahead of time which ones 
he's going to go to. But but David Stern's seats would just pop open, and they would you know if you went to a Ticketmaster machine at that time and you saw at just the right moment, and you asked to buy a lower level seat. They've been sold out for a year. Now all of a sudden you can uh, you can buy David Stern seats. That's incredible. In the final season, uh, when Jordan is one foot in, one foot out, basically, it, it, did did prices dramatically rise? Yeah, it was it was it was insane. Are you are you talking about ninety eight? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you know, look, every game, every game, in in, in this regular season and then in, in the playoffs is. You know, this is this is Jordan's last game. This is Jordan's last game. It, you know, it's, or it's the last final. It's the last game against this team. Right. It, it got crazy, and and I saw throughout the year, if it was a big game or a Friday or Saturday night, people are routinely paying a thousand bucks for like a lower level seat. But in the playoffs, it really got nutty to the point where I I, I had my biggest sale. These are the biggest price per ticket I ever sold. I sold four of his seats, and you know, he was probably getting them from his dad or his brother or someone who had those seats. Mm-hmm. And he was probably paying them way, way less. Mm-hmm. He was probably taking them for free and then just knowing he could make money and, and going and selling them. Courtside has row A and B. It, they're both called courtside. Um, and then there's even rows one and two. If you have a ticket that says row one courtside, it's actually the third row because A and B are in front of that. I think these were row B. So they weren't, they maybe weren't the folding chairs. Pretty damn good seats though. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. Row A and B are the folding chairs, but it wasn't, it wasn't the front row of folding chairs. It was the second row of folding chairs. They, they were, they were great. I mean, they're amazing seats. And of course, where you are in the court makes a difference too. If you're, if you're deep in the corner, you might even be past the end line. It's actually not a good seat to even watch the game from. We can't see what's going on that well. But these were, these were like at the free throw line, row B. What do you think those were worth? Face value or are we, we talking about what you... We're talking about what, what did I sell them to, to my end user. To, actually, my, my sale was not even to an end user. It was to a ticket broker in LA who then wow. presumably marked them up from there and sold them to right. his client. Well, what do they go for face? Uh, the face is probably something in the like, neighborhood of like 500 bucks. Mm, and this is, this is in the playoffs or this is the... Play, this is playoffs. I think there's actually a finals. This is the finals. Oh, uh, I'm going to go with 7,000. Good guess. Good guess. I remember this is, not, this is 98. So uh, I actually looked it up to see how much money then was worth now. But actually, you're, you're spot on because it, it was it was 5,200. I was going to say 5,500. Well, someone we have more than just a grudging respect for, Davey Rothbart, a.k.a. Huey. Thank you so much, my man, for coming thanks, on. Guys. And uh, thanks so much, dude. So long. Take care. And there it is. Thank you so much for listening to the Last Dance After Show. We also want to give a special thanks to our two wonderful guests, Davey Rothbart and Brian Moses. To learn more about them, you can visit our site at thelastdanceaftershow.captivate.fm. You can also look at our show notes as you listen to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you do your listening. We'd also like to give a special thanks to our editors, the wonderful Melissa Zhuang, Kat Owen, and Meg Chen Soon. Thank you. Once again, we want to thank the people at Feeding America that David spoke about in the middle of this episode. To help them out, you can visit their site at www.feedingamerica.org. What do we have happening on Thursday again? We are interviewing noted director and writer Adam McKay, uh, who was the head SNL writer who also wrote and directed Anchorman, as well as Talladega Nights. He directed The Big Short, as well as Vice, and was also in Chicago during uh, some Jordan years. So, should be entertaining. Very exciting. Uh, Until then, thank you all for listening. Thank you. 
Be safe, wash your hands thoroughly. See you on Thursday.